everyone, I hope you're all doing so well and welcome back to the Criminal Makeup Podcast. Each episode, we dive into the minds of some of the worst criminals in history and today we're going to be talking about the case of the Los Feliz murder house. So this case, it is a bit different from what we usually cover because today we're actually going to be looking at a real life murder house. And for any of you that are American Horror Story fans, this particular house in Los Feliz was one of the houses that inspired the very first season of American Horror Story because the very first season is called Murder House. And in the first season, the story is based on a family which move into an old haunted house which has a long history of murders taking place there. Then lots of weird things and strange events start happening which make them start to regret buying the house. And that is basically a very quick summary of the first season of American Horror Story. And I highly recommend that you guys go and watch it if you haven't. So back to today's case, this episode is not on American Horror Story, but today's case involves a very gruesome murder in a house that people would later claim to be haunted. And there are definitely some similarities between today's case and the American Horror Story series. It's not like exactly like the show, so don't be expecting all of those things that happen in the first series to happen in this case. But there are definitely certain things that you can see where American Horror Story got their inspiration from. And that is what we're going to be covering today, the Los Feliz murder house. So let's dive in. So on the 6th of December, 1959 in Los Feliz, California, Dr. Harold Perelson, who was age 50, returned to his wife, Lillian, who was age 42, and his three children, Judy, aged 18, Joel, aged 13, and Debbie, aged 11. And he returned home and Lillian, the wife, was just cooking dinner. She was also wrapping some Christmas presents. It was the 6th of December, so like coming up to Christmas. It was just a regular evening, nothing out of the ordinary, nothing strange. And the children um, later on in the evening went to bed and they were shortly followed by um, Harold and Lillian. But Harold didn't like go straight to sleep. He actually um, did a little bit of bedtime reading. And then obviously after he'd finished reading, he went to sleep and uh, he woke up at around 4.30 a.m. <sighs> Sorry, I've got to brace myself for this. Um, he got up and went and got a hammer. Yeah, randomly half four in the morning, he got up and he went and got a hammer. I'm not, I'm not making this up. Like half four, like he didn't go to the toilet like a normal person. He went and got a hammer. Harold returned to the bedroom with the hammer. He stood over his sleeping wife and struck the hammer down on her head just once. But he did it with so much force that that one blow was enough to kill Lillian. Um, she was actually knocked unconscious. So the initial blow didn't kill Lillian. This is what the police found out later in the autopsy. However, it had caused so much damage and there was so much bleeding that Lillian died of asphyxiation, which means she drowned in her own blood. Oh, that's just It's just absolutely horrible. So after Harold struck Lillian, he just left her there, I think he thought that he'd killed her straight away. He just left her in the bed, just laying face down, um, where he walked into his ensuite and walked from the ensuite straight into his eldest daughter's bedroom, who was Judy. She was 18, remember? And he struck her in the exact same way. But unlike Lillian, this one blow didn't knock her unconscious. It didn't kill her. She woke up and she screamed bloody murder. I mean, I think we all would. 
she screamed the house down and the scream woke up the other two children in the house remember debbie and joel it woke up both of them and it also woke up the neighbors in the surrounding houses that's how loudly she was screaming now harold reacted in a very bizarre way like it it's I still can't get my head around it now, how he reacted. So whilst Judy was screaming, Harold very calmly, just, I don't know, so bizarre. He very calmly said, quote, lay still and keep quiet, which obviously Judy didn't <laughs> do this. And somehow, I don't know how, but somehow Judy did manage to get away from her father and she fled from the house and she went to get help. She went to a neighbor's house, um, but the first neighbor that she knocked on the door uh, the neighbor was awake. However, they could hear the commotion going on and they were so terrified themselves that they didn't answer the door. They didn't know it was Judy. They didn't have a clue what was going on. I mean, can you imagine hearing all of that as a neighbor and then somebody knocking on your door or banging on your door? You would be terrified. You wouldn't know who that was. You wouldn't want to look out the window either just in case that person saw you. So the first neighbor didn't actually answer the door. So Judy moved on to another neighbor's house, which belonged to a man called Marshall Ross. And thankfully he answered the door and the police were immediately called. And bear in mind at this point, Judy had been struck multiple times with the hammer. She was bleeding profusely. I cannot even imagine like what was going through that neighbor Marshall Ross's head. I, I just can't even imagine what he would have been thinking. Meanwhile, back at the Perelson household, um, the two younger siblings are still in the house and they had been woken up by Judy screaming and they went to investigate and they did come across their father, Harold. And he said to them, very calmly again, he just seems very calm throughout this whole process. He said to them, quote, go back to bed, this is a nightmare. Obviously the children didn't believe him because they knew that they were awake. Now at this point, like he's just told his children to go back to bed. I don't know if Harold was planning to kill his entire family at this point. I don't know if he almost didn't want them to be aware of what's going on, which is why he said like, go back to bed. This is a nightmare. Well, he said it a bit differently to that. But you guys know what I mean. Like, I don't know if he wanted them to just go back to bed and pretend like none of this was happening while he was carrying out these gruesome murders. Or, and I don't know if this is even what he would be thinking, but this just kind of popped into my head. Was he so sick that he wanted to kill his children in their bed? Like, did he have this thing that he wanted to kill his family whilst they were sleeping, while they were in their own bed? Because obviously he killed his wife in that way. He attempted to kill Judy in that way. Or he may not have even been planning on killing his children. Or maybe he was planning on killing the other two children. But because Judy had fled and interrupted his plan... Maybe he was having second thoughts. I don't know. This is just kind of like what goes on in my brain. Okay, so jumping back to Judy and the neighbor now, Marshall Ross. He was so brave. He went over to the Perelson household. I don't know if Judy had told him about her younger two siblings and he wanted to go over to the household to help out, like to get them out, to help them. He was very brave and he went over to the Perelson household where he was confronted, came face to face 
with Harold. I just thought, I can't even imagine being that Marshall Ross. He's just answered the door to Judy, who is covered in blood and has probably told him that her father has tried to kill her. Also telling him about her mother because before she fled the house, she had run into her mother, probably to see what the hell was going on. And she found her mother dead in her own bed. So can you imagine what Marshall Ross is thinking right now? He's heard this from Judy and now he's gone over to the house and he's face to face with Harold who is also covered in blood from his wife and from his daughter and still has the hammer in his hand. He's a very brave man, that's all I'll say. And again, Harold reacted so bizarrely to the neighbour. He very calmly said to the neighbour, quote, go home and don't bother me. Like there was just like some kind of little dispute going on between neighbours. <sighs> yeah. Again, I just kind of want to like pause for a second and kind of just, I don't know, just almost process <laughs> what the hell has gone on because a lot has happened right now. I just don't understand like the way he reacted to the neighbor. Just the way he's reacted to everyone in general, to be honest, I don't get it. He doesn't seem angry at all. He doesn't seem like he's lost his temper. He doesn't seem like he is in like this murderous rage and he's going around and killing everybody. He just seems so calm and collected. Like if he was in a murderous rage and he was interrupted by the neighbor, like you would think that he would react in a more violent, aggressive way. So after this little interaction with the neighbor, Marshall Ross, Harold went back into his ensuite bathroom. He went into the medicine drawer. He pulled out Nembutal, Nembutol. Don't really know how to pronounce that, but what's new? Um, which is also known as death in a bottle. So very lovely name there. And side note, that was actually the drug that killed Judy Garland and Marilyn Monroe. And it's basically just like a sleeping aid. Um, it was like very easily available in the 60s. Um, but because it's so dangerous, i.e. the name death in a bottle, uh, yeah, it's now illegal in most countries. So if you hadn't guessed, uh, Harold is trying to commit suicide and the Nembutal probably would have been enough. However, he just wanted to make sure that he really wasn't gonna wake up. He didn't wanna take any chances. As well as the Nembutal, he also swallowed 31 pills, thought to be codeine. And then from his ensuite, he walked back um, to his bed, lay down and just waited for the pills to work. Now, I've just got a little thing here, why 31? I know that's very weird that I've picked up on that, but why 31? That would have taken ages to count. Like, was that the actual, like, magic number, if you will? So it took 15 minutes for the police to arrive. Remember that the neighbor called the police and the police found Harold covered in blood, which was from his wife and daughter. And they also found that Harold still had the hammer in his hand. The hammer was still in his hand. I just don't get this. Right, okay, so let's let's break it down right now. Yes, he had the hammer to kill his wife and attempted to kill his daughter, but then he went to his bathroom to take some pills to commit suicide, which meant that he would have had to put the hammer down to take the pills um, because he had to count out 31 pills, didn't he? Uh, so then he picked the hammer back up. So he took the pills. And he picked the hammer back up, went to his bed and just lay down with the hammer in his hand. I just don't know why he picked it back up. Why couldn't he have just left it where he put it down? I don't know. Like, I, 
I don't know if I should be focusing on that. Like when I was doing my research, there was nothing like that said that that meant something. But I don't know. I just kind of feel like that's weird. Does anybody else? So anyway, the police found him with the hammer in his hand. And astonishingly, Harold was still alive. Um, these tablets hadn't worked that quickly, but he was barely breathing and he just wasn't going to make it. Like he would have died before an ambulance got there. So when the police were obviously at the house, they did find a copy of Dante's The Divine Comedy on Harold's nightstand. And this was the book that he was reading before he went to sleep. Now, I didn't have a clue what this book was and it seems like a pretty famous book. So I don't know if I'm just really stupid that I don't know what it is. But first of all, it's not a comedy. Don't let the name fool you. But doing my research, I've got to say, I was very confused for a very long time. I'm still confused now about the book. It's not the easiest book to understand, but I just should let you know, it's very heavy reading. Not the typical book one would read to try and fall asleep to. Like it wasn't like Harry Potter or anything. It's basically a 14,000 line poem. And it describes a man's journey through the afterlife where he visits hell and heaven. Now, the book was open to a particular passage and I don't know if this passage means anything, but um, I will read it out because I think it's kind of interesting. So it said, quote, midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a dark forest for the straightforward path had been lost, end quote. Now, I don't know if this passage has any kind of significant meaning, I mean, he was reading it before he went to bed. Maybe he just got tired and put the book down open to where he left off. Or maybe he just didn't have a bookmark. I don't know. But that passage and pretty much the whole book really talks about a man who's a little bit lost midway in his life. And he's in his 50s in this book. And obviously Harold's in his 50s. So I don't know if Harold may be related to that passage in particular or just the whole book in general. I don't know. But yeah. He was reading Dante's Divine Comedy, which, um, look it up if you want to. It's a head scratcher. It's very difficult to understand. So what drove Harold to murder-suicide? Almost a double murder-suicide. So let's just like kind of take a trip down memory lane. So Harold was born on the 1st of February, 1909. He was an Aquarius and he was born in New York. His parents had settled in Queens, New York. They were both immigrants from Eastern Europe and he grew up the eldest of four children. He went on to attend medical school and after he graduated and became a doctor, he did move to California just because it was easier for him to get a job in California than it was in New York. And when he was in California, he did land a job at an Inglewood physician's office. And while he was there, he published several papers on neurology. And then later on, he became a cardiology professor at the USC School of Medicine. He also met his wife Lillian and obviously had three children, but there wasn't really much information of like when they met, where they met or anything like that. But he was very respected in his field. And with all of this respect, with all of the success came a lot of money, which is how they were able to buy this beautiful home in Las Feliz, California. Now this was a beautiful home. They actually paid $60,000 for it, which would be half a million dollars in today's money, which is a, a lot of money. And it had 12 rooms, it had magnificent views, it had a staff quarter. Um, not that they ever used it, but it did have a staff quarter. It even had a ballroom. Yeah, on like the very top floor, 
there was a ballroom and there was a bar, there was everything. This house was huge and it was so beautiful. It was the family's dream home. It was in a very wealthy area as well. And the situation of the house, it was like on a gorgeous hillside. Now, Harold was known as an injection specialist, whatever that means. <laughs> um, and in 1938, he had filed a patent for a device of his own invention and it was called the magic syringe. I don't know if that was going to be the final name, but that's what he was calling it then. But you know when you have an injection and there's that little glass bottle that has that seal over it and the person giving the injection puts the needle through that seal to draw the liquid out to give you the injection? Well, that's basically what Harold had invented. So he filed the patent for it in 1938 and it took him a total of 11 years to completely develop and make this product. So after the 11 years of development, he entered into a verbal agreement with someone called Edward Shustak and he was going to be like the business side of the agreement. He was going to market the magic syringe. He was going to be all like the marketing business side. And then Harold was obviously the inventor. So they were going to split the profits 50-50. And Harold really thought that this magic syringe was going to be a huge global success, especially with the help of Edward. And Harold had invested a lot of his own money into this project. He'd invested all of his life savings. And he was really banking on this magic syringe being this huge global hit. Um, however, Edward had other ideas. Edward had no intention of splitting the profits 50-50. Edward Shustak wasn't even his real name. He was a complete con artist. Nothing about him and nothing what he had told Harold was true. He was planning on just running off with as much of the money as he possibly could. So Harold did manage to take Edward to court and he was demanding $100,000 in damages for the fraud. And Harold actually did win this case. I mean, I can kind of understand why he did win this case. Edward was a complete con artist. Um, however, the court only awarded Harold $24,000, which was less than the money Harold had invested into the project. So he was still making a loss. So at this point, uh, the Perelson's financial situation wasn't the best. So three years after Harold got screwed over by Edward, Judy, which was the eldest daughter, uh, she got into a car accident and her two siblings were also in the car where she collided with another car and all three children were injured in this accident. Now, the other driver of the car does claim that Judy was in the wrong and the accident was her fault. However, Harold was having absolutely none of this and he ended up taking the other driver to court for carelessness and negligence. And miraculously, again, he won this case. Um, Harold was demanding as damages 20,000 each for his daughters and then 10,000 for his son. Harold was demanding a combined $50,000 for this accident. However, just like the first uh, court trial, the court didn't award the full damages that Harold was demanding and they only awarded enough to cover the medical bills. Now, like I said, the financial situation of the Perelson family wasn't the best and there's no evidence of this. However, I do feel like Harold was like trying to profit 
off of this accident that his children were in. And I feel like Harold, um, he had kind of, like it seemed to me anyway, he kind of felt like he was overspending a little bit. Like remember they bought that amazing, beautiful home. He was banking on that magic syringe, making him really rich, but he was spending as if it had already came out and was already making him rich. I think he was really hoping to recover some of those losses from this court case. And also just before the 6th of December, which was the day that the murder and attempted murders did take place, the daughter Judy had written to her aunt and said, quote, my family are on a merry-go-round again. Same problems, same worries, only tenfold, end quote. I think it's safe to say that she was 100% talking about the financial situation. And I think this is just like a really good example of you never quite know what's going on behind closed doors. Never judge a book by its cover. Harold Perelson to the outside world was a very successful, very well-respected doctor. I think a lot of people would assume that they were pretty wealthy. So those are all of the significant events, if you want to call them, that led up to the 6th of December. So it's just like, what out of all of that could have possibly driven Harold to commit those horrific acts? So Dr. David Adams is a specialist in Familicide? Is it familicide? I never know how to pronounce that. So Dr. David Adams says that a man that kills his wife and at least one child is normally an older gentleman, normally in their 50s. Harold was 50. Is normally an average of seven years older than their spouse. Harold was eight years older than Lillian. And they are normally very invested in their public image. If there is a risk that this image will be or has been harmed, they suffer I just I found this so weird. They suffer a narcissistic injury. I had never heard of that before. Have any of you? I've never heard of a narcissistic injury before, um, but that's apparently what these men suffer when their public image <laughs> has been harmed. I shouldn't laugh, it's not funny, but I just, I've never heard of a narcissistic injury in my life before. Um, and then Dr. David Adams says that they murder as a form of damage control. And I think we can safely say that he was invested in his image. I mean, just look at the house that he bought and he probably technically couldn't afford that house. He was in financial difficulty. Who knows? Like, was the house going to get taken off them? I don't know, but I think it's safe to say that he thought anyway. He thought that his public image was going to be harmed or had already been harmed. We don't know. And if we just take a look back to the crime, I think this just really explains how... Harold was so calm and collected. I mean, just look back at the language that he was using. He did seem strangely and weirdly calm throughout the whole thing. And it did just seem like he knew exactly what he wanted to do. He knew exactly who he wanted to murder. He wasn't on that murderous rage. I've got to do some research on that narcissistic injury. Unfortunately, I think we all know or have known some narcissists. And I want to know what this narcissistic injury is. Like, I want, I want to know. So you probably think that, oh, this story's over now. No. What happened to the house after is like just as strange and bizarre. And I think what has happened to the house after the crimes is almost what has made this case quite infamous. So since the murders, the three children have never been heard from since. It's thought that they have changed their name and just moved out of the area. So in 1960, 
the house in Los Feliz did go on the market and it was sold at auction to a couple named Emily and Julian Enriquez. But bizarrely, they never moved in. They never did anything to the house. They never changed it. They never renovated. They never redecorated. I don't know why they bought this house. All they seemed to do with this house was use it for storage, which it's... That, that, that's kind of expensive storage. So because it stayed exactly how it was. It was like this preserved crime scene. It did become a source of fascination for quite a few people. Though unsurprisingly, the house did attract some visitors. So when people started to trespass, that is when some paranormal activities started to be reported. And it did seem like it was a real life haunted house. And it has been reported that a Christmas tree still stands like it did when the murders happened. And there's even apparently, at least there was then anyway, presents under the tree from when Lillian was wrapping the presents. Now, oh my God, how creepy is that? A woman has also been seen in the window, like a ghostly figure. And this is thought to be Lillian. And also I think what's really, really weird is that randomly sometimes, the security system will just go off in the middle of the night. And I know that that obviously also could be trespassers, but it also might not be the trespassers. And there was this woman that did um, want to go explore the house. When she opened the door, the security system immediately went off. But at the same time, wait for this, this is so, so weird. At the same time as she opened the door and the alarm system went off, she got bit by a black widow spider. Why wasn't I there? So not only that, when she returned home, her own security system just kept randomly going off for no apparent reason. And she felt like the ghosts of the Las Feliz house had followed her and were almost punishing her and almost trying to put her off going back to that house. After the couple that bought the house from auction in 1960, um, they had it in their possession for over 30 years. And upon their death in 1994, it did pass to their son who again, didn't move in. And then in 2016, he also passed on and the house eventually went onto market after nearly 60 years after the murder and it was still almost perfectly preserved. And it quickly sold for $2 million to a couple. And they had all of these plans for the house. They're gonna re redo it in the way that they wanted. They were really excited. They didn't seem to be bothered at all about the history of the house and all the paranormal activity and the murders and anything like that. They weren't bothered at all. So then why didn't they move in either? They didn't move in. After three years, they decided to abandon their mission of renovating this house and they put the house up for sale again. No one seems to want to move into this house and I don't find that a coincidence. And interestingly, the house was sold in October of 2020. We'll see if anybody moves in now. I can't imagine they will. Now, it just seems to me that the ghosts and the spirits of the Los Feliz house are trying to stop anyone from moving in, from trespassing. It just seems very weird, doesn't it? And if you've watched American Horror Story season one, spoilers here, so yeah, don't wanna spoil anything. Um, if you've watched that first series, you know that that is basically how the series ends. All the ghosts group together 
and they don't want anyone else to move into that house because of how cursed it is and how many murders have happened. So did you pick up on any other similarities to the first season of American Horror Story? I'm interested in hearing what you found similar in American Horror Story and this case. Let me know in the comments. So what I picked up on the similarities between American Horror Story and this case. So Ben, the main man in American Horror Story is a doctor. Harold is a doctor. Um, in American Horror Story, the wife Vivian, whose name is quite similar to Lillian, just wanted to put that out there. Uh, she dies, Violet also dies in American Horror Story and Judy nearly died in this case. Ben also at one point wants to commit suicide and obviously Harold did commit suicide. Also the previous owners of the murder house in American Horror Story died of an apparent murder suicide which I kind of found interesting. Yeah, those were the similarities that I found and I could definitely see where American Horror Story had taken their inspiration from the Los Feliz murder house. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much everyone for listening today. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of The Criminal Makeup. And if you enjoy the show, it would mean a lot if you could leave a five-star review. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please take the time to look at the description for this episode for some helpful resources. Special thanks to my producers at Audio Boom Studios and I'll see you all in the next one.